from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Democrats say they plan to attach a 15-month suspension of the federal debt limit to a stopgap funding bill. Congress has to pass that bill by the end of this month to keep the federal government open. Republicans say they oppose the move and will vote against a bill that would suspend or raise the debt ceiling. Democratic leaders said the measure would fund agencies through the end of the year and suspend the debt limit through December 2022. The bill would also fund responses to various natural disasters and the resettlement of Afghan evacuees. The Biden administration says it will move the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management back to Washington, D.C. The Trump administration moved the headquarters to Grand Junction, Colorado in 2019, arguing it saved money and was necessary to bring decision makers closer to the lands they manage. The Interior Department's inspector general later found Trump officials misled Congress in justifying the relocation. The office in Grand Junction will now become the bureau's western headquarters. Only 41 employees had agreed to move from D.C., with just three of those going to the new headquarters. The Defense Department is working with Congress to expand the definition of domestic sources under the Defense Production Act. The Pentagon wants to purchase supplies from companies in the United Kingdom and Australia to lessen its reliance on China and other countries it considers risky. Currently, the definition of domestic sources only applies to businesses in the United States and Canada. The Department of Homeland Security says that ransomware attacks have doubled in the last four years. The Treasury Department will create sanctions to try to prevent cybercriminals from profiting from those attacks. Ron Marks is a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate Majority Leaders. Currently, he's president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies. Ron, nice to see you. Nice seeing you, too. There was the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. Howard University here in D.C. shut down for a while because of a ransomware attack. What's going on? Why the increase? Well, they're, they're simply, it's, first of all, it's profitable. Uh, you have a number of groups, mostly out of Russia at this point, uh, and in spite of what the government has said over there, it, it's even if it were in their control, and it is to some extent, there are just a lot of them, and they know it's easy to do. They can access these sites, and, uh, and by and large, people have been paying off. So as far as they're concerned, you know, it's the old joke about Willie Sutton, why do I rob banks? Well, it's because that's where the money is. I'm sorry to see that we've had that increase. I think heaven only knows Homeland Security at this point. Uh, Jen Esterly over there has done everything but stand with a pair of signal flags jumping up and down saying, don't do this, don't pay off. Um, but but, but it's hard don't pay to. off is easy to say. Yeah, but when is. somebody's got your data, what are you supposed to do? Well, and this, and this goes to the fundamental problem of people taking it seriously. And, and I know this sounds funny, especially because you and I live in a place where this is a constant drumbeat. But if you talk to CEOs around the country or if you talk to other people, by and large, they're sort of like, well, you know, I'll put the lock on the door and, and we'll put the alarm on. But eh, it's all said and done. You know, are they really going to hit us? Or do we have enough that it really matters? And, and the answer is, yeah, you do. And you're going to find out, unfortunately, probably the hard way. Um, this is a case of sort of bad risk management on their part. 
Uh, I always use the analogy of a house. You know, if you want to protect your house, do you, do you put a bolt in the door? Do you put locks on the windows? Do you buy a dog? Do you get a shotgun? Um, you know, what is it that you have to do? And it tends, and I, listen, I ran businesses, I understand. Um, you know, you, you tend to, you're looking for profit. You tend to want to decrease that cost, if you can't, of security, in part because it's amorphous. You know, if I buy $200,000 worth of security, what am I getting for this? Well, what I'm getting for is I'm taking it off the bottom line. So it's nice that the government tells me to do this. Um, I will fulfill their requirements, whatever they ask, because I have a fiduciary responsibility, so I can get away with it that way, get away with it in the sense of that's my, that's, that's my bottom line. But it doesn't really get to the point, which is that this is like bank robbery or breaking and entering, which is that anybody's home or anybody's company can be subject to it. But what is the role of government here in protecting individuals, in protecting private companies? Well, I'm pretty hard over on this one, and I must admit, it's not necessarily popular to suggest that government can do much of anything. As you know, we, we seem to be in that time again. But, you know, one of its responsibilities, frankly, is social welfare. And this is really goes to the guts of that. How do you protect IT systems that are now such a deep part of all of our lives? I mean, I want everybody to think about what they just did this morning. I don't know about you, but I got up, flipped on the computer, looked at, you know, looked at the news to make sure, you know, I had something nice to say here, or at least, at least, you know, current. Uh, I looked at my bank account. I was over on Drudge trying to get some news there. I was, you know, that's, it's not only just a part of our lives in terms of information, but it's a part of our lives. Just think of your Amazon orders. Just think of your regular business on a day-to-day -day basis, your business communications. So, you know, with 85% in the private sector in terms of that, that's always a good number, 85%, but it seems like about the right one. Um, you know, somebody has to protect this, and that's our job here to do that, or at least to lay out some rules, because it's not the private sector's job. You know, every time I see a Facebook or an Amazon or whatever else say, we're going to do something about this and set up a group, that's, that's fine. And, I, and I'm delighted that they do so. Taint their job. Mm. And it is the government's job. So what do you think of the Treasury Department's sanctions that they've announced? Is that going to change anything? Well, it's interesting that, that they've gone after uh, this in the way that they would have gone after drug dealers and organized crime. It's almost the old-fashioned RICO stuff, which is, you know, you go after the bank accounts, uh, you sanction individuals, um, you let people know essentially, look, if you pay off to these guys, you're going to be part of the problem here that we're looking at. The question again becomes, you know, how seriously can you get other people to pay, the people who are doing this to pay attention? Uh, I think the Biden administration, they're pretty good so far. I mean, it is a sort of a two-pronged attack right now. I mean, they, are, they have picked up the phone and gone to Putin for all that that will do and say, look, you know, knock it off. Um, you know, they have gone out, Cyber Command, I'm sure, has gone out and done their thing. Uh, and to do it from sort of the domestic side as well helps. Um, but, you know, again, I think you're up against a problem that is probably going to continue. You're going to ameliorate this problem. You're not going to solve this problem. You know, the federal government says, hey, we want companies to report and tell us when there's an attack that's happening. Um, companies don't like to do that. Sometimes they don't want to make that information public. If so, I'm the chief security officer of a company, and my job is depending upon the fact that I kept that company secure, and I walked into the boss and said, you know that thing that I was supposed to do for you? I right. haven't done and it. And now let's make it public. And now let's make it public. And if I'm the boss as well, or the CEO, or obviously in the C-suite, but, but elsewhere, even smaller companies, what have I just said about my system? 
what have I just said about my internal preparations? So do we force them to report? Do we make it a regulation? I, I hate to say it, but I'm leaning more and more in that direction right now. And I'm and I again I'll go back the, to the nineteen twenties analogy when you had bank robberies crossing state lines and you finally created an FBI to step in. I think that's where we are right now. I think it's going to continue to get worse and pressed in different ways, uh, in spite of guarantees from our friend Putin, in spite of because that's really about where 85, 90 percent of this is coming from. Um, in part because it is an easy way of disrupting us. That is the goal of Russia. They're not going to challenge us militarily, but this is part of the cyber and election and other things. So I think, frankly, just sort of laying down the rules and saying, look, you need to report this. I know people aren't in favor of that these days, but I'm just telling you, it's got to happen because it's it's a little bit like safety rules and whatever else. You know, you don't allow people to put 20 people in a room anymore, okay? Well, so. Ron, this issue is not going to go away. No, There's going to be a lot more conversations we're going to have to have about this. But thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming next, climate change is a problem for more than just the environment. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at the intersection of climate and security. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Extreme weather events this summer show that the risks of climate change are growing beyond just being a problem for the weather. Climate change disasters can lead to instability and conflict, threatening security. Erin Sikorsky is the director of the Center for Climate and Security. She previously served on the National Intelligence Council. Erin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. How does climate change affect security? Sure, there's lots of different pathways through which climate change affects security. It can affect our troops directly uh, and their infrastructure and their bases. But what we saw this summer was climate change layering on top of existing state fragility, poor governance, corruption in places around the world and creating bigger problems for communities. I think Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, as the Middle East is a key example of this, where you had uh, the driest summer in 50 years, record high temperatures, which led to power outages and water shortages, pushing people out in the streets to protest, not only because of the climate effects, but because of governance corruption, uh, poor management of natural resources for many years. And then when the climate shock hits, it's a very combustible mix. And then you have governments uh, scapegoating, uh, maybe vulnerable communities, maybe, you know, so-called foreigners. Exactly. You saw that in Turkey, where the government blamed the Kurds for lighting wildfires. Also in Algeria, where the government blamed so-called terrorist groups linked to uh, Morocco and Israel, supposedly. And so, again, it just exacerbates existing tensions within states. And when governments can't handle the challenges, and they're coming more rapidly than ever before, right? Uh, they often turn to, to blaming others, which then continues the cycle of potential uh, violence and instability. So Aaron, back to this country, what role does the intelligence community play in mitigating or preparing for climate-related security risks? Sure, so the job of the intelligence community, right, is warning uh, policymakers about risks to US national security, 
and giving them tools to think through how different uh, parts of the system, the shocks of the system will shape our opportunities and threats abroad. So the intelligence community should be warning policymakers that climate change will shape these conflicts in many different parts of the world. And it needs, the climate analysis needs to be mainstreamed throughout the intelligence community. So it's not just the climate office warning about it, but it's the office that looks at China, the office that looks at the Middle East, and they bring that climate lens into the issue as well. From what you know, do you think the intelligence community is currently doing what they need to do on that front? I think the Biden administration has put climate security front and center in its foreign policy. And we've seen DNI Haynes and others step up and say it's, it's central to the work. But I think one of the key challenges is building a workforce that has the scientific literacy and understanding to integrate these issues. And that takes time. And so I think they're still catching up with hiring people, bringing people in, training people up uh, to be able to, to tackle these issues. When you compare the cadre of folks looking at climate to the cadre of folks looking at China, for example, there's a lot, there's a big gap there. What do you think government leaders in other sectors need to do to address these gaps in managing climate security risks? Sure. So I think, you know, at the State Department, at Defense Department, at Homeland Security, the first step, and, and most of them have done this, is saying it's a priority. When it's the boss's priority, then the rest of the agency follows, right? But then they need to have the resources to understand the risks and leverage the unprecedented predictive capabilities we have when it comes to climate change. None of what happened this summer is truly a surprise, right? Scientists have been warning about this for years, and the latest UN report, which came out in August, laid out the trajectory for the globe. And so integrating that into planning and into strategy. So it's the Assistant Secretary of State for Near East. It's their responsibility as much as it's John Kerry's responsibility, who's leading climate change uh, work at the State Department to, to tackle these issues. That's that mainstreaming, that integrating is critical. Well, obviously mitigating and preparing for climate related events needs to happen quickly. Um, do you think there's the will and the funding to do that? I think the will is there. I think funding uh, needs to follow from Congress in particular. Uh, and I think right now, as they look at the National Defense Authorization Act for the coming year, uh, there's lots of opportunities to provide the resources that the Defense Department and the intelligence community need to tackle these issues. I think even more can happen in terms of adaptation and resilience, as we saw with Hurricane Ida here in the United States. We face these challenges as well. It's not just a problem abroad, and uh, we need to, to rush to catch up uh, to where we're at with, with the climate changing. All right. Well, Aaron, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Aaron's article at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, combating the spread of misinformation at the Census Bureau. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how a trust and safety team helped secure the 2020 Census. I'll be right back. Not only did the Census Bureau have to count every person in the country in the middle of a pandemic, they also had to deal with potentially dangerous rumors and falsehoods spreading around social media. 
In response, the Bureau established the Trust and Safety Team that worked internally and with technology leaders to end the misinformation about the 2020 Census. Zach Schwartz helped create and run the team. He's the Division Chief of the IT Service Management Office at the Census Bureau and a finalist for a Service to America medal. Zach, welcome. Thank you for having me. So how did you know about this problem of misinformation? How were you alerted to it? So we understood what had happened in prior election years where information online, especially on social media, was not always accurate. And we were very concerned that leading up to the census, because of the polarization and commentary around a citizenship question, that things were going to get heated and that mis- or disinformation could be found online that would discourage people from completing the census, which in the end only hurts their local communities. And that actually did happen. Correct. We, yep. I mean, there was rumors like, um, you know, they're going to report you if you're undocumented. Um, people are going to come to your house and try to rob your house. Yeah. You know, don't believe that they're yeah. census workers, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was, it was really disheartening to see some of the initial content online about the census. And so our team quickly mobilized and coordinated with social media companies, technology companies, fact checkers, and many other organizations to help fight the mis and disinformation online, to combat what we were seeing and make sure the spread never got very far online. And luckily, we were able to do that successfully. So you were able to do it successfully, but were they those technology companies? I mean, we're talking Facebook, Google. I yep. mean, those are not small companies. No. Were they receptive to that? They were. They really did end up supporting us. You know, it took a little bit of time because the census only happens every 10 years to educate people on the importance and what the data is used for. Billions of dollars every year in roads and infrastructure and schools that every response does matter. And once we were able to get the education through to these companies, they truly knew that we needed to fight this information online and they worked hand in hand with us to make sure the content they had on their platforms was accurate and was authoritative from the census. Now, who's sitting there watching all this? Because that's a lot of stuff to watch. Yeah. I mean, You've got several platforms, mm -hmm. even things like Nextdoor, um, which is usually about, hey, I need to find a plumber, um, was talking about the census. So wh who's watching all this? Yeah, luckily we had some really great uh, artificial intelligence technology that was feeding information to my team and alerting us to things that we needed to know about, right? When celebrities posted misinformation, when information was starting to spread online and getting a lot of likes or shares, things like that really triggered our team to focus on it. And that's how we knew when an issue would be popping up. Uh, and luckily we were able to have a much smaller team because of this kind of AI that existed. So what were some of the obstacles that you faced in, in getting this done? The biggest obstacles were the conversations back in the middle of the decade explaining the census. It really is difficult for people to understand the impact that the census has. Uh, but even more so, once we went live with the 2020 census, the biggest issues were just having to explain to the general public, right, through conversations like the one we're having and others about the, di the dangers of listening to everything online and making sure that they fact-checked or that they reported information to us. We really worked hard to make sure it wasn't just us identifying information, but the public was helping to share information with us as well on things they saw on Nextdoor or in their WhatsApp group or other kind of closed platforms where misinformation can dangerously spread fast. I wonder if you ended up having any problems with the, the workers going door to door. Was there any security issues? I mean, did anybody, you know, act out against those? 
Yeah, as, as you can imagine, we luckily were able to combat a lot of the really violent things that we saw online. There were threats, uh, things about unleashing dogs on Census Bureau employees, things that were very dangerous, and we were able to work closely with our platforms, local law enforcement, and certainly our folks on the ground to make sure that we knew where we needed to avoid, where we needed to make sure we um, addressed any issues, and luckily we were able to have only very minor incidents and very, very few of them across the entire country. So, Zach, I understand that your team's um, work became a model for the CDC Correct. in fighting misinformation and disinformation about the vaccine, about the virus itself. Tell me about that. Yeah, we were we had some great reach out and many conversations and direct work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention around fighting vaccine misinformation. And we were able to provide some of the best practices that we had. We were able to provide some of the technology that we used and most importantly, the network. Who were the right people to work with at these, as you mentioned, very large companies uh, in order to make sure that the information that people are seeing about vaccines online is authoritative and accurate. You know, I mentioned that you're an award finalist for a service to America called the Sammies. What does that mean to you? It's it's a huge honor, uh, a recognition of unbelievable work that obviously not only the Trust and Safety team did, but so many others to make the 2020 Census an unbelievable success. I think everyone is seeing, based on the accuracy that's coming out today, the independent reports, uh, how amazing the Census went, how accurate it was, and just a complete um, success overall. Well, Zach, congratulations, and thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.